Welcome to Bible Study. This is Nick Rita, your host. Very happy to be with you again today and thank you for tuning in with us. Keep in mind that uh, we are uh, happy to um, answer your uh, questions and calls. If you like to call us, don't hesitate to do that. You have our numbers at the beginning and the end of this program, but also you can get uh, on our website and uh, check us out. Today it's uh, another wonderful uh, study and uh, I cannot wait but just uh, have some insights from our panel today and I would like to welcome uh, this uh, panel. Today we are a bit small, not like other times, but anyhow we, we are very happy to have you with us here and I will start with Len. Thank you Len for joining us. Yes, it's always good to study God's Word and listeners, we hope you enjoy the study of God's Word as we present it today. And Lydia, good to have you with us also. Yeah, I'm very happy to be here. Today, um, Ken is going to be facilitating this uh, Bible study. And Ken, thank you very much for coming along with us and also preparing this uh, study. I'm looking forward for, um, for what you have prepared for us. And uh, I will just hand it to you right now. Thank you, Nick. It's always a pleasure to be here. And I really do enjoy coming along to these Bible studies and not only do we put the Word of God out there, but we also learn ourselves. Today's study is looking at facing opposition. So I want to welcome our listeners to the Bible study. And something I'm sure you've all face, uh, faced at some time in your life. But today we're going to look at the opposition Christians face. And in this example, we're looking at the story of Nehemiah and Ezra in the Old Testament. But before we begin... Let us have a word with prayer. Lane, would you like to open with prayer for us? Yes. We invite you to join us in prayer, listeners. Father in heaven, we thank you again for the opportunity of opening your word and learning something there of value for us. And we recognize that in our lives there's always some opposition. We pray, Lord, that when we have opposition we might face it with grace and courage and do what is your will and not just what others tell us we should do. So we pray that the Holy Spirit might be with us as panel members, as presenters, and with each person who's listening today. So we invite your blessings in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Listeners, if you have been following us over the last few weeks, you will remember that we were looking at the story of the Jews building the temple and later on uh, Jerusalem rebuilding the, uh, the city again and the opposition they faced. And I'm going to ask Nick if he would start by reading Ezra chapter 4 and verses 1 to 5. Sure. I'm uh, reading from uh, New King James and this is um, where I start in verse 1. Now when the advisories of Judah and Benjamin heard that the descendants of the captivity were building the temple of the Lord God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we seek your God as you do, and we have sacrificed to him since the days of Eshadon, king of Assyria who brought us here. But Zerubbabel and Joshua and the rest of the heads of the fathers, house of Israel, said to them, You may do nothing with us to build a house for our God, 
but we alone will build to the Lord God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land tried to discourage the people of Judah. They troubled them in building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. You can, you can understand here that they had an ulterior motive. At first they said, let us come and help you, pretending to be friends. Mm. And then later on, when their offer was refused, they tried to do whatever they could to prevent the rebuilding of Jerusalem. It reminds me of what happened in Second World War where various people were conscripted. No, they were really slaves um, by the Germans to work in their factories to produce munitions and so on, how that many of those workers uh, tried to make mistakes, flaws, so that, say for it's uh, an aeroplane part, that it would break while in flight and cause that plane to crash. And I suspect there was Sand Ballot and his crew intended to do the same thing. Instead of actually helping they want to hinder and mess up the building project. Yeah, mm. this I was just about to say. Um, actually, they were the enemies of Judah, and they played a trick. They wanted to show that they are friendly, they want to help. But on the other hand, behind the scenes, in their hearts, they had... The, these evil things to pull them down, to discourage them, or even to break the walls, or even to start a fight, or who knows? I mean, just in the first instance, when you look at this passage, you know, you, you have to be uh, just fair to say, look, what about if they have a good intention just to, to help them? These people are coming from, um, from the captivity, you know, uh, there was a, a decree there, uh, and uh, what about if they would like to help? What was the reason behind it? That's another question. But in first instance, these people may honestly want to be involved in the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. I think there's an answer to that question, Nick. If you read through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, and there was Sanballat, uh, the others who were with him, their intention all along was to prevent the rebuilding of the temple and of Jerusalem. They even wrote a letter to King Artaxerxes I. says, look, these people are enemies of the kingdom. Don't let them go ahead and establish their city. Otherwise, you're going to have trouble. So all along, they wanted to stop the rebuilding. I think, as Ledger was saying before, that they were simply pretending in order to make a mess of things. Mm. And also, I uh, just want to m uh, mention at this point in time that uh, as we read in the book, if, if our listeners you know, want to check out all the um, passage in, the, in uh, Nehemiah and Ezra as we are uh, reading today, they, some of the things there, they are not in, in a chronological order there, and we need to, to find out that because otherwise we can be confused with the decrees uh, mentioning names like kings, you know, which you, one was before the other one, but the, the thing was after, you know. What I'm trying to say here is that the most important thing, in my opinion, which uh, was 
in more to protect the reason why they are going to rebuild the temple and the, uh, the city. Because these people who were brought there, they were worshipping in their own way, even though they said that they, uh, we worship your God, but Israel was compromising with the worshipping style of other people who were brought there. That's why they went into captivity, actually. And uh, to me, this was a very wise and, I believe, inspired position of the leaders of Israel to say, no, we are going to build the temple for our God. Because then they were the ones to implement, if you like, the right style of worship. I think Nick's hit on a very important thing here, and that's this. The Israelites who were involved in rebuilding the temple and uh, the walls of the city and so on said, no, we don't want your help. Thank you very much. And, of course, there was Sanballat, uh, the others who were with him. Then they tried to thwart all the plans of rebuilding. Now, there's a very interesting and pertinent point here. I've seen it happen in my lifetime. The area where I grew up was a very strict Lutheran community. And the Lutherans, by and large, were restricted from interacting with the rest of the community. In fact, they even had their own school at one stage. I was going to the public school and there were kids in town going to the Lutheran school. The idea was not to fraternise with those out there, the others, because what happens when you do that, there's a watering down of your own culture which includes your religious practices and beliefs. And so I think the instruction to prevent or not to allow these foreigners to help was a good thing. You may remember the Lord had told the Israelites over a long period of time, don't intermarry with other people. It's going to bring in uh, worship of other gods, false worship. Solomon's an example. Solomon was brought up as a good Jewish boy when he was king and nations wanted to uh, make peace with the Israelites and so he married daughters of the surrounding nations. What happened to Solomon? Well, his, uh, he, he had so many wives and uh, concubines that his morals, his whole culture collapsed well, almost collapsed. It's a, a very interesting story and there's so much happening there. Uh, it is amazing, I find, that uh, these people who the Bible clearly tells us are the adversaries of the Israelites came and asked them to help and uh, it does make it clear what is actually behind the scene. I'm just going to ask Leitcher to read a section just to expand on this and make it even a bit clearer. Um, the adversaries, it means the enemies, came to offer them help. So, were they adversaries? That alone gives a powerful hint as to why the Israelites reacted as they did. Why were the people called adversaries? In Second Kings, chapter 17, verse 24 to 41, explains that these people were imported from other nations into Samaria 
and the surroundings region after the northern kingdom Israelites were deported. The king of Assyria sent them priests who were to teach them how to worship the God of the land that is the God of Israel. However, the resulting religion incorporated the Canaanites' gods as as well. Therefore, the remnant Israelites were afraid that this religion would be brought into their temple worship. Hence, the best and smartest thing to do was what they did, which was so easy. They just said, no, no, thank you. We have to remember, too, just why all this was happening to begin with. It was there for forefathers, constant compromise with the pagan faiths around them that led to the destruction of the temple as well as to their exile. Presumably, while in the very process of building the temple anew, the last thing that they would want to do would be to get too closely aligned with the people around them. Then you want to add something to that? Yeah, well, I want to go off on a bit of a tangent. Who can you trust more, your friends or your enemies? <laughs> I would like to suggest that you can probably trust your enemies more than your friends. Now, I want to qualify this. When people are trying to be friendly, they might be trying to be friendly in order to get something from you. Your enemies, well, you basically know what they're about right from the beginning, that they are your enemies. You probably can trust them that they are not trustworthy, at least as far as you're concerned. So in that case, you can trust your enemies because you know that they are not out to do you any good. People who pretend to be friendly might be having a, a, a hidden agenda. Just before you have something to say here, Nick, we're talking about facing opposition today, and I've been pondering whether opposition is good or if it's bad. Now, on the face of it, opposition looks like it could be bad, but in actual fact, opposition can help you clarify your own thoughts, your own ideals, your own morals, whatever it is relating to that situation. It's like saying that you don't learn much from your friends, but you learn a lot from your critics. To me, opposition, uh, it seems like Len said, is clarifying in my mind and in my heart uh, what is my position to God, to his commandments and to my faith with God. Uh, people nowadays, they are happy to see us going to church, uh, having programs and so on here and there. But when they see, when they observe that we work in fire with God and they see the results that people are coming to Christ, here they come and they are very unhappy to see the results that people are, are, are coming to Christ. Satan is doing the same. Satan is not happy. Satan will be happy just to, to be lukewarm, to profess our Christianity, you know, going to church here and there, but not be in fire with God. Yeah, well, just, uh, I think, from the beginning, we trying to uh, clarify the thing that uh, what was the reason for rebuilding the temple, Jerusalem, and uh, how this came along, you know, the offer of the opposition to help and uh, the Israelites to say no. Now, keep in mind that uh, all these group, two groups, 
they were under the same rulership of the Medo-Persian Empire. They were no better one of the other. What they were trying to do, these people, as we call them, the, the um, adversaries, they saw that the Jewish people, they have uh, approval from the kingdom, you know, from the Medo-Persian king to rebuild this. And if they will join that, they will look good also in the eyes of the king. You know, they, they are involved with. But we have to separate the thing here. Here now, the answer of, uh, of the leadership of Israel was not about the building. It was about more than that, about the principles, about the morals, about all other things which will involve having a temple functioning and all the other things along with. And when uh, we mention here that uh, for the exact reason why these people were imported here or the Israelites deported from there was because of failing to worship God in the right way. And to me, looking back now to the theme of our uh, study today, when we're talking about facing opposition, I'm trying to transplant this into our uh, daily life. I grew up in a communist country and uh, known as a Christian country also, even though the communist regime will, uh, will deny that, but it was 90% orthodox and many other religions too. And now I'm talking about, uh, let's say, some Protestant groups in, uh, in our country. They were in fire for God, as Ligia mentioned, to do the work of God because there was opposition there, because the communist regime will try to cut down all your uh, uh, means, you know, of uh, serving God, showing that uh, belief and faith in God, and then you have, you'll be even more determined to stand firm for your beliefs in God. Len, you have something to add to that? In Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, is this verse, All scripture is profitable and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Now, the first bit says, All scripture is profitable. So when we read through a book with a lot of history, or books like we are now of of Ezra and Nehemiah that's part of scripture and so it must be profitable so one of the things that I think that we can learn here is that we should never compromise our principles that doesn't mean to say we can't interact with other people but we should never compromise our principles if we are called to do something then we should do it not compromising because as soon as you start compromising it's easier to, to take the next step of compromising and the next step and so on until soon you've lost your identity and lost your purpose I think Len that's a really good point and I think many people in the world today non-Christians look at many of the Christian churches and realise that they're not on fire for the Lord and they're really in many ways perhaps just a bit of a social group because they cannot see the results of what Christians are meant to be. And I think in many cases this turns a lot of people away from God, which is very unfortunate. But just coming back again to the story, we see that, uh, again, 
the Israelites, uh, as we were saying, they're trying to build this temple, and as Lane was saying, and Nick was saying that it's not so much for the temple, but it's actually the worship of the Lord. This is what's behind it all, and do they trust the Lord? And again, this is a challenge all Christians have because we all have opposition, we all have problems, we all have challenges, and sometimes these can be quite difficult. But do we stand or ground? Do we trust the Word of God? And do we keep praying to God and keep looking forward? I think it makes it very clear that the Israelites did not want other so-called gods introduced into their temple. Listeners, if you look up Second Kings chapter 17, verses 24 to 41, you can see the full story on this, but we won't have time to go into that today. Now, the Jews are still very afraid to carry on the building work, so God sends them Haggai and Zechariah. Panel, who were these two men and why did God send them to the people? Haggai was an old prophet and at the same time Zechariah was a young prophet. So to me, when I found that in the Bible, I said, hey, I think God had a great plan to send an old prophet we had which had a long a lot of experience behind him and a, a young prophet so uh, i think a young prophet has this energy and uh, determination and uh, challenges skills to implement into these people yes i think that's a, a really good point and in many ways i think it's uh, not unlike us today if, if we're a little bit older it's good often to hang around younger people because they have the, uh, shall we say, many cases, the excitement to have the um, the energy, which sometimes those older people haven't got just as much of. Lane, you want to add something? Well, I think it's very interesting that God sent prophets. Prophets were there to guide, to uh, give instructions from the Lord. Now, in this day and age, we don't have too many prophets running around saying, the Lord says you should do this, that or the other. However, we have guidance from God's word. Most of us in Australia are reasonably well educated because uh, school attendance is compulsory. And we have God's word. But, you, you know, it seems to me that so many people are going about lacking guidance because they don't look. God's word and see what God's word has to say. Back then, I guess they were, they didn't have access to the books of the Bible like we do. And so God used prophets to deliver a message to encourage them, encourage them to remain faithful, to encourage them to go on with their work, to encourage them to retain their moral purity as far as it went at that time. And in olden days, People believed more in the prophets than any other people because most of them, they knew that the prophets are God messengers. So I don't know how much people are believing today in prophets because uh, they are out there true prophets and false prophets. Nick, you want to add something to that? Yeah, I just want to, uh, before we probably need to go and read that um, account, you know, from Haggai, uh, those verses, because it will give us a, a clear pictures about why in our study we're we talking about the role of the prophets. Now, when the opposition uh, was um, shown up, you know, to, to the Jewish people, obviously that impacted them. 
because if we read now, we, we're just scratching the surface of the, you know, all these accounts in the Bible, but you will see that the work stopped there and uh, people are more carrying on with their daily life. Uh, and here God is n- showing us that he's not abandoning his plan with his people, yeah. even though sometime we may fall away and being, you know, have all sorts of questions in our minds saying, look, oh, these people are look, lots of opposition. This must not be from God or maybe it's not the right time now to pursue with this and so on and so forth. But God is bringing the message through this prophet. Len, would you like to read actually that in, in uh, Haggai? All right, uh, I'm going chapter. to read a fairly lengthy passage from the book of Haggai. He's one of the minor prophets toward the end of the Old Testament. Chapter 1, verses 1 through to 11. And this is what the Bible says. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your panelled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much but have harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build the house. This is the house of the Lord so that I may take pleasure in it and be honoured, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with his own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew, and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and whatever the ground produces, on men and cattle, and on the labour of your hands. That's the end of what I was going to read. But here the Lord is pointing out the purpose of you returning back to Jerusalem from exile was that you re-establish your culture your relationship with me and that is uh, highlighted in the worship of God in the services in the temple instead they were just looking after their own interests and the reason why these people existed was languishing they just hadn't got on with the job And so the Lord sent Haggai with this message and twice it's mentioned, 
give careful thought to your ways and for, for this is for us and you listeners give careful thought to your ways are you just busy just doing life or are you doing life in a sense that you want to be with God for eternity Hmm. I think that's a, that's a really interesting story there. And I'd just like to add, in case our listeners are a little bit confused, the house that they're talking about obviously is the temple, but God doesn't need this temple to live in. That wasn't what was being built. God has a much greater place in the heavens that uh, hopefully one day we will all see. But this was just a thing that he wanted, something on the ground that the people could come into and remember him and pray to him on a regular basis. So that was basically why he wanted this built. But it's so interesting, as Lane was saying from Haggai, that many people today, and obviously back then, they're going about their own uh, day-to-day activities. And these, remember, these were God's chosen people originally, and yet they're not really honouring God, and they're not really paying too much attention to God in as much as they're not even getting on with the work of the temple and God wants them to remember that he is their God he is there for them and he wants to look after them but they have to acknowledge him and I think one of the most important things I find out of this particular chapter is also uh, told in Matthew 6 and verse 33 God is saying or Jesus is saying but first seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added on to you now we're talking of course as people we all like to have nice homes and nice cars and good jobs and be able to do stuff but sometimes we neglect the important things of the Lord and here the Bible's clearly telling us put God first and he will reward you next Lane, you wanted a word? Oh. Yes, I know Lydia wants to get a word in each ways too. <laughs> Back in the time of Moses, just before Moses died, he gave, um, if you like, uh, what I would call the swan song. He gave a final instruction to the people of Israel. The same occurred with Joshua, and it was this. Serve the Lord, obey him, honour him, and you will be blessed. If you disobey, you will not be blessed. In fact, you'll be cursed. And here, what the message that Haggai has presented was showing them that the people, because they were not obeying and honouring God, although they were there back in Jerusalem, which was supposed to be their holy city, uh, they were just getting on with their own business. And the Lord's pointing out through Haggai, the reason why you haven't profited is because you've just left me. You you've, haven't focused your lives on me. You've been focusing on yourselves. Mm. If you focused on me and you got to work and built the temple and the religious services and practices were re-established, there would be a, a real centre for you, but instead of that, you're, everybody's running around doing their own thing, and you've neglected me. So, says the Lord, basically, these are my words, because of that, I have neglected you to teach you a lesson. Exactly the same pre- um, in principle, what Len said. I wanted to say that God 
sent these two prophets, Haggai and uh, Zechariah. So they were raised up by God to meet the, the, these people's crisis. So uh, they appointed this cause of their troubles because they focused on themselves, on their own lives, and they forgot about God. So they tried now to guide them, and they said twice, as it said, give careful thought to your ways. And later on, uh, Haggai encouraged them and said, I am with you, this is, declares the Lord. And many times, if we read it, Haggai, it says, be strong. He refers to Joshua, be strong, all of you people, be strong, Zerubbabel. So... In verse 5, uh, chapter 2, verse 5, he says, I covenant with you when you came out of G Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. So Haggai was there to encourage people to remember about God's promises and to, to gather them again to remember God's promises and to do God's will and come close to God to reestablish their relationship with God and also uh, Zechariah the same uh, Zechariah also has uh, a vision in which God discovers him again the truth and the uh, the ways of encouraging people and bring them to God to be able to rebuild and go forth with God because you couldn't push people you couldn't pull them you couldn't push them but everything comes from the heart if the heart is changed inside everything comes as natural Nick you want to add yeah I mean this uh, passage from Haggai it's an amazing uh, passage and we can unpack a little bit more of that just a couple of points I would like to uh, reiterate here first of all let's not be too harsh of God's people because they were not doing what they supposed to do that they, they were not uh, you know uh, they were just slack and all sorts of things because the passage is not saying that what the passage is saying is this first of all it was the excitement of opportunity to do something for God but at the same time under the human nature and surrounded with opposition human beings it's very easy to fall into that discouragement and to say okay as i mentioned a bit earlier is this the right time to do something why we have so much opposition is god really saying that we should do it now and so on and so forth and god is coming now with a message through these prophets which lydia mentioned that the prophets were very well regarded uh, among the people and they were saying look you are struggling guys you are here you work hard and you don't have hardly anything in the Bible says somewhere that sometime we are getting early in the morning and working all day long hard working hard to the night and not being able to build you know bricks on top of each other why because the blessings of God and here is the thing through the message of the prophets God is encouraging his people and say, guys, just don't give up. Stay strong for what you are called to do. And we are here, each one of us today, to represent Jesus, to represent God. And we may have opportunities and we may be excited of having opportunity to say something. But after a, a very short time, you know, we call that a fiery ball, you know, which goes quickly in flames 
and extinguish as quick as it, it got in flames. That's the dangerous thing, which I believe through this message of the prophets, you know, Haggai and Zechariah, we are encouraged to pursue, to stay strong in what God was telling us to do. I'd just like to comment on Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, which uh, is a statement made by Jesus where he said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Now, he doesn't say seek only. He says seek first. The Lord knows that we have other things to do, but the, the center focus of our lives, which brings blessings, it brings peace, it brings moral goodness and so on, is to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and do the things that God wants. There is a statement that I've heard, and I'll repeat it. The most important thing is to keep the most important thing as the most important thing, not to get waylaid by just the everyday issues of life, to keep a focus on what are our lives all about? What's our aim? Are we just going to live, die, that's the end of it, good night, Irene? Or is there something beyond that? Well, God's promises are true, and he promises for those who are faithful to him that they will have eternal life. Full stop, no qualifications. Um, I would like to also to add the fact that uh, God's people, they were, they faced so many times opposition of rebuilding the temple and the walls of Jerusalem that they got discouraged. That was, this was the problem over there because they faced opposition, they faced humiliation, violence against them. Um, At one point in time, they should wear, uh, uh, you know, a spear and uh, a bow or whatever uh, in the right hand and with the, the other one to, to work. So it was not easy. And because of that, God sent these prophets to encourage them again because even the kings, they received letters, they stopped the, the work. And after that, God uh, worked on the king's uh, hearts and minds to release uh, another decree to uh, l- let the work uh, go forth and so on. So they faced many, many of opposition. Who's the, who's the enemy? Because here it's, uh, we were talking about the adversaries and the enemy. Who's the enemy, the ultimate enemy? Obviously in that time and in our time too, Satan is the one who will oppose God's work. Whatever is going to do with God, Satan will find ways of discouraging that. And he will use people. He will use kings, he will use uh, people in power or, you know, to discourage the good work which we suppose to do. But are we going to be discouraged because of the almighty pressure, you know, uh, upon us from the enemy? Or are we going to be encouraged because we know God? And here to me, this is a very sensitive thing. If we really know God, if we really trust God, if we really have Jesus in our hearts, we'll not be troubled by all the opposition which will arise in front of us. We'll be determined, we'll be encouraged that God will 
be in control. God will do what is needed to be done, the work to be accomplished. And when we probably haven't touched a lot today on uh, when uh, Nehemiah was coming there and uh, his strategy, how to make these things happen, uh, was very, uh, very interesting. I'll just mention very quickly that Nehemiah was, it's a, an amazing character. He was, when he heard that the work is stopped in Jerusalem, and people are doing bad, you know, his brother came with a report and, you know, saying how things are going, he just said, look, really bad, really bad. And he was troubled. And for four months, he could not be comforted. He prayed, he fasted, he was planning how to seek the king's advice for him to do something there. He was planning towards it. And when, once he got in Jerusalem, he had a strategy. And that shows us that with a strategy in place, with the determination, we are going to achieve what God is, is asking us to do. I'd just like to go back a little bit. Uh, we were talking about prophets. Uh, Lynn was talking about these earlier on. And I don't know, perhaps people today are wondering maybe, well, why haven't we got any prophets today? But you must remember, listeners, that back then, we didn't really have the Word of God. There was uh, books of the Old Testament. Obviously, it wasn't all written. It wasn't all finished. Mm -hmm. And so God sent people to in, uh, intercede for him because the people didn't have the Word. But as time went on, uh, man got smarter because he's made in the image of the Lord. And we, there, there's basically nowhere you can go today in the world that you cannot get God's Word. So rather than having a prophet, we have God's word from start to finish. Yeah. Okay, and just uh, to bring it up a little bit uh, uh, more to, to our days, I believe we have prophets. What a prophet means? Well, a we prophet is not only someone who tells the future, mm. it's a t someone who gives guidance and counsel and teaches. Mm. So um, in this particular case... Um, Haggai and uh, Zechariah, I think it was, mm -hmm. they didn't actually have to predict the future. Correct. They were giving counsel from the Lord. Yeah. And that what uh, what I'm trying to say is that a, a prophet, it's a messenger. Yeah. It's God's messenger. Now, are we God's messengers today? Can we do the role of a of a prophet today? We can in various ways, because this is the thing. When the Word of God is buried, if you like, in, into, you know, neglected, you know, we, we know about the Dark Ages, we know about the time when, you know, God's Word was not uh, received well by people, because it was just shut down. When somebody, when God put a spark in, in somebody's life, and he's determined to bring back to, to the uh, to, to life God's plans we are God's messengers in a way I believe there are many uh, prophets today now I would like to say that uh, uh, otherwise the Bible wouldn't talk about false prophets in the last days and true prophets in the last days the thing is that we are not looking in the right direction what a prophet means and what a prophet is about 
uh, in these days. That's why we we saying, and we you know we you, we have that you may heard that saying a lot. Why have we seen today a lot of miracles, like in Jesus' time or the other times? Why? I believe there are lots of miracles today, but we don't have eyes to see it. Mm. Nick, that's that's an interesting point. I was really thinking of prophets as they basically were in Jesus' day, where they did amazing things. And look, there's absolutely true miracles happen every day all over the world. Uh, you don't necessarily always see man's hand involved in this, but obviously the Lord's hand is involved in it. Glenn, did you want to say something? Yes, else? well, of course, the gifts of the Spirit, one of those gifts is the gift of prophecy. And those gifts were not just available in the uh, apostolic church. Those gifts are available right now. And I believe, to a certain degree, that we, as presenting Bible truth to you listeners today, are doing a job of prophecy. We are being prophets. Not that we would call ourselves that, but in fact that's what we're actually doing. We're giving guidance from God's Word, the Bible, to help you in your life. Okay. We can see again that uh, God's people were slow to believe all that he said and work on the temple. It was often started and stopped and started and stopped because their adversaries kept writing letters full of lies to the king of the day. Leachie, would you read for us Ezra chapter 4 and verses 7 to 8? And in the days of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Bishlam, Mitredach, Tabil, and the rest of his associates wrote a letter to Artaxerxes. The letter was written in Aramaic script and in the Aramaic language. Rehum, the commanding officer, and Shimshai, the secretary, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes, the king, as follows. And then we read also verses 11 to 16 of the same story. This is a copy of the letter they sent him to King Artaxerxes from your servants, the men of Trans-Euphrates. The king should know that the Jews who came up to us from you have gone to Jerusalem and are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are restoring the walls and repairing the foundations. Furthermore, the king should know that if this city is built and its walls are restored, no more taxes, tribute, or duty will be paid, and the royal revenues will suffer. Now, since we are under obligation to the palace and it is not proper for us to see the king dishonored, we are sending this message to inform the king so that a search may be made in the, in the archives of your predecessors. In these records, you'll find that this city is a rebellious city, troublesome to kings and provinces, a place of rebellion from ancient times. That is why this city was destroyed. We inform the king that if this city is built and its walls are restored, you will be left with nothing in Trans-Euphrates. Thank you, Lecce. I want to ask the panel, if you had been the king of the day, what do you think you would have done when you received this letter? Mm. <laughs> I just want to uh, comment on this because very interesting how uh, these people 
are using in their advantage the situation, the development of the uh, ruling kingdom for that time. The, in this case, the king was uh, Artaxerxes, as, as uh, was mentioned. But the rebuilding of the temple, uh, the decrease towards the rebuilding of the temple was given before through other two previous kings, talking about Cyrus and Darius. These uh, people now, they use the right time. Imagine, they were waiting maybe years and years, seeing that what's happening there, but they could not succeed because these people have a letter from the king of that time. But now it's a new leader. It's a new king. And they are using that opportunity, trying to tell this king, and interesting enough, they are not pointing to the king to look back into the archives and see if there was a decree given to rebuild the temple, but they ask to look in the archive to see how rebellious these people in Jerusalem were in, uh, in, the, pre, uh, in the olden days. And the king is trapped here. He look back, he find out about that, and he give uh, orders to stop the rebuilding. rebuilding. Very strategically, how the enemy is working here. Very strategically. But I would like to probably later on, if we still have time, because time is going very fast today, uh, to see how God's people are going to uh, react towards this letter <coughs> of discouragement towards the king. Okay. Now, it is clear that the Jews knew God wanted this temple built, but because of all the opposition round about, they kept stopping, thinking perhaps now was not the right time to finish the temple. You see, they questioned God. Did he really know what he was doing? Did he not understand their problems? Listeners, at these times we need to remember God is always with us no matter what is going on. Panel, what happened when Nehemiah took over us? Lay it out in Nehemiah chapter 4. What okay. sort of things did he organize? Well, my wife and I read this chapter last night and I, find it rather, I found it rather inspiring. There was a plot with Sanballat and his cohorts to attack uh, and destroy the walls that were being built and also to destroy the builders. Somehow or another, the message got out and so Nehemiah organised a strategic plan that the people would continue building while at the same time being ready to protect themselves. Mm. And um, when San Ballot and those others heard this, they knew that uh, they couldn't um, spring a surprise attack. Now, I just wanted to make a comment here, and I found this really interesting. Nehemiah called the people together, and I'm reading from Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 14. He said... Don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. Reminds me of a song I learnt when I was in primary school. It was called Men of Harlech. And part of it went, Fight for wives and mothers, children, sisters, brothers. Your country needs your bravest deeds to save yourselves and others. And okay, that really hit me. However, here's Nehemiah telling people, now, 
You've got to fight if needed. But later on, Nehemiah said, our God will fight for us. Now, is this a contradiction or is it not? Well, I see it a bit like this. You know, God just doesn't want us to sit back and let him do everything. We have a part to play in our own salvation. We have to do something about it. There are situations we all have, uh, I'm sure everyone's had similar, that there are really difficult things that we have to deal with. Do we just pass it all to God and say, God, it's your problem, or do we try to do something? And I believe it's our responsibility to do something within the paradigms that we have as Christians. But God will help us, especially when we're at the end of our tether and we can't do anything else. Uh, it impressed me a lot, these verses in uh, Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 16. And I wanted to read because I could see that these people, they done their part. So it says, from that day on, half of my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows and armor. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other, and each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. It means these people, they just got God's word in their heart and they fought. They fought so much that they put their lives um, in danger. I read also a bit further that they said that many of them, they, did, they didn't even took their clothes off when they slept. They slept as they were in their clothes. They just wake up, ate something quickly and go back to work. So it means they were so devoted to the work of God. So it means uh, God had God succeeded his mission through the prophet uh, Haggai and Zechariah and Ezra. Praise the Lord for that. Mm. Nick. I just want to make an application uh, right now in regard to what Lydia was reading there and uh, Lennon. Our discussion today. We are in a war zone, if you like, in the time we live in. We are Christians to bring uh, a better understanding of our loving God to as many people as possible. And I'd like to make that application about the sword in one hand and with the other hand building up the wall. What that means in our days, in our time? So many Christians, they don't have the sword of God, which is His word in their hand. They don't know it. They don't know how to handle it. And I will ask for uh, people, for those of you who are listening now, make sure that you know the Word of God, the Bible, because that will be the sword in your hand to stay strong against the enemy, to be prepared. God will do His will. God will help. He, the victory is His. But we need to be equipped. We need to have that sword in our hands. And working towards the rebuilding of God's kingdom. Because that's our role. Jesus, the great commission of our Lord Jesus Christ, was to go and to preach this gospel in 
Judea, Jerusalem, Samaria, and to the end of the world. Are we doing this? Are we equipped to do this? Or we are like those people in the days when Haggai was mentioning that we uh, working hard to do things and we are struggling of uh, having what we need. Thank you, Nick. That was a good point. Well, listeners, we've just about run out of time again. I'd just like to say that there are many lessons in these stories for us today, but I think one of the main ones, of course, is trusting in God and putting God first is so important. So I'd like to thank you all for listening, and I'm just going to end today's study with a prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord God, it's a real privilege to be able to be here today and put your word forward. Not only that, Heavenly Father, but to expand your word and explain it as best we can, the stories that you put forward for us to learn from and to abide by and to live by. These things, Heavenly Father, are so important for all people today. And we ask, Lord God, that the Holy Spirit would reach as many hearts that would be open to it, that they could seek the Lord and find out these wonderful truths that's in the Bible and also the prophecy that you have told your servants about all things that's happening in the world right up to the very day that Jesus returns. We just thank you, Heavenly Father, for all these blessings in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Amen.